Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name's uh, Jason. I've been on staff now for about 18 months, and Bill lovingly reminded me that I've only been out here three times, or something like that. So if you're like, who is that guy? You are not alone, I am sure. Um, and I just have the privilege of every once in a while coming out and letting Eldon take a holiday. Eldon deserves a holiday every once in a while, right? As long as it's not to Mexico, because then I just get jealous. That's how that goes. Um, we're in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1 through 15. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have your phone, you can go there as well. It will be on the screen. Um, so we, we've kind of been working through the life of Abraham and, and what it looks like to be a, a person of faith and, what, and, and what, it, what it was like kind of initially with God revealing himself to Abraham and then the challenges that come with believing the promises of God. Um, and so we just kind of continue that story now, but we turn a little bit more to Sarah. But before we, we get there, um, a, a few weeks ago, well, actually, it's, time moves pretty quick, over spring break, so a couple months ago now, um, <clears throat> I took my family to uh, the H.R. McMillan Space Center. We went and kind of looked at all of the uh, things that they have, which really is it's a bit of an archaic kind of a setup. Um, but the, the really cool thing is when you go into the, into the very top dome where they have almost the three, 360 camera that comes and, it, and you sit in there and they show you a, a film of, of kind of the, the grandeur of space. And so I took my family and we had my nine-year-old daughter, my six-year-old son, and my three-year-old son along. Um, and they all sat in this chair, and I had Lincoln, my six-year-old, beside me, and we we're kind of leaning back, looking up at these stars. And as soon as they kind of started the show, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And they go through the whole thing, looking at our solar system and, and how we're, we, we circle around the sun and, and what its planets and how incredible Jupiter is and what it does in order to protect us from you know, meteorites that come close. And then, and then it moves farther and farther and farther out and shows the Milky Way and the billions upon billions of stars that exist. And we, we've kind of finished the show and, and Lincoln's quiet and as we're walking down kind of the dark tunnel, he kind of like tugs on my, on my hand and says, Dad, I feel... I feel so small. Like, yeah, buddy, you are. Like, actually, quite literally, you are very small. But yeah, right? Perspective changes when we start to see the world in a different light. That, that's something that uh, Johan Hari discovered. He's a journalist in the UK. From, from young on, he struggled with depression. And, and the, the answer from the pharmaceutical world, from the medical world was, here, take this pill and it will help you with this neurotransmitter imbalance that you have in your brain. And so he took these pills and it would work for a little while and then he would discover, oh, I'm getting more depressed and he would up his medication, he would feel better. And as he went through life like this, he got to a point where he was taking the maximum dosage he possibly could for antidepressants and it wasn't helping him. So he started to research and write a book on um, what it would look like to look at alternative methods in fighting depression. The book's called Lost Connections, and one of the seven alternative methods is to go take a hike. 
ground, ground, groundbreaking, right? Like, get outside of your 400 or 800 or 1,800-square-foot house, get away from the screen on your iPad or, or your television, get out into the world that's bigger than you and go climb a mountain and look and see, oh, the world isn't all about me. There is more than my 400-square-foot life. There is more than the five people that I know well. I can look out, I can look at the stars, I can look at the mountain ranges and the valleys and the rivers and think, I am small in comparison to what's going on. And, and this, is, this is true in our lives. If, if you've ever sat on a dock at night and looked up at the stars on a calm lake, you think to yourself, wow, the world is big. You see, the story that we're going to look at today is, is this moment for Sarah, when she understands that, that the way she's been thinking and the things that she's been thinking about are just too small. So let's read together Genesis 18, 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man and prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where, where is your wife Sarah? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child? Now that I am old, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. We all giggle at that point. Because <laughs> we, kind of, we kind of affiliate with Sarah, don't we? 
Like, I mean, imagine the circumstance that she finds herself in. She hears about a promise of God at age 66, and she has been waiting 24 years for this promise to come true. And it's just natural for her to laugh again. Oh, yeah, okay, now that I'm 90, sure, let's make that happen. I don't think you understand how this works. We find ourselves there, don't we? In our circumstances, where we live, in the difficulties we face, in, in, in the, the challenges that are ahead, in our jobs, in the, in the strife that we face day to day, we read the Word of God, we read what God has said about Himself and about what He is doing in the world, and we think, sure, I've been living this life for this long, and I just naturally laugh. Don't I? I find that in myself. See, what, what's so interesting in this story is like God, God does not announce himself. He shows up with the, in, in, in the form of these three men, two angels and God. And, and Moses is writing this story down after it happened. And so we can get the idea from verse 1 that, that somehow Abraham understood this was God. But, that, but that's not true. See, Abraham is, is taking a break if, if you've ever been in a hot culture, if you've ever been in a spot where the sun gets incredibly warm, you work early, and when the sun gets hot, you take a break. It's called a siesta. Us Mennonites like to call it a medachlope. I think we should implement medachlope on a daily basis. Just a midday sleep. Just relax, take a break doze off for a little while. And this is, this is kind of what Abraham's doing. He's, you know, he's worked hard, tended his flocks, he comes to the tent door, he sits in the shade, he closes his eyes and rests. And, and when, when he opens them, he sees three men traveling. And, and, and his ancient Near Eastern culture just says, at this point in time, when you see men traveling at this time, what you need to do is you need to go out, you need to invite them in so that they too can rest. This is just ancient Near Eastern hospitality. He's not doing it because he has some extraordinary sense that this is God, or somehow these three men look different. It's just a matter of him saying, okay, I see some men, this is my culture, I'm gonna invite them in, I'm gonna be hospitable to them. And in so doing, he actually entertains angels. Hebrews 13. You know, we can pause here. It's not a main part of the story, but we can pause here and see that throughout Scripture, one of the characteristics of a person of faith, of one who has found Christ and seen the hospitality of Christ upon us, to see that the righteousness of Christ is freely given to us so that we can then live life in that light is an outworking of hospitality to those around us. That's what happens with Abraham. Abraham is blessed beyond measure, no matter what happens in his life. When he makes poor decisions, God blesses him with flocks and herds and people and, 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 and vic military victories. And so out of response of God's blessing, Abraham's like, look, I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to lavishly be hospitable to those who come into my sphere of influence. It says... 
uh, three seahs of flour. That's six liters of flour. He's not making a snack. He kind of says, hey, let me go get you a water and like a few cakes. He makes like loaves and loaves of bread and goes and kills a calf and brings them like the best, the choicest things that he could possibly give to just lavish on these people who are coming to him. And in so doing, he entertains angels. Do we have that kind of attitude towards the things that we've been given? To the lavish blessings that we have in our lives? Do we understand that it's from God and that we should lavishly be hospitable to those around us? And in so doing, we actually proclaim the gospel to the world around us that is, has closed garage doors and locked front doors. Hospitality speaks a lot to, to the beauty of the gospel and what we have in Jesus. But, but you see, that's, that's not the main part of the story. You see, God did not come to talk to Abraham. He came to bring a message to Sarah. Now, culturally, God stands outside of the tent in a male-to-male relationship, and Sarah hears. And it's only in this conversation that Abraham starts to realize, oh, wait, I'm not talking to just an ordinary person. This, This man knows my wife's name. This man knows the promises that have come to me. And he's claiming that this will happen within a year from now. So it's at this point that Abraham becomes aware that who he's talking to is actually God. And Sarah's listening on the other other side of the tent, listening to this promise and thinking to herself, you have got to be kidding me. I don't know who this guy is out there. Maybe he is someone special, but I've been waiting 24 years for this promise. And I'm postmenopausal, brother, and I know how the world works. It ain't happening. And beyond, besides that, my husband's old, and the little blue pill has not been invented yet. <laughs> like, there is no chance. Are you, are, are, are you kidding me? Like maybe at 66, yeah, sure, I'll believe that promise. At, at 75, I took things into my own hands. And like by, by some sort of miracle, we, had, we, we, we made Ishmael. So just accept that. But I'm, I'm 90. My husband's 100. I, I don't think you understand how this works. I've been faithful this long. But, but, but you see, God's question to Abraham, for Sarah, reveals the nature of the problem. See, Sarah's problem isn't pragmatic. It's not physical. It's not medical. It's theological. Her problem is that she has a God too small. Her her biggest hurdle is not her menstrual cycle or her age. 
Her biggest problem is understanding how capable and big God is. See, Sarah's God right now is too small to follow through on his promises. When he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, in Sarah's mind, he's too small for that. Sarah's God is too small to change her biological state, to actually change the physical fibers of how biology works and bring about a miracle. Her God is too small. And her God is too small to turn her suffering into joy. See, in her mind, Yahweh, this God who's made a promise with her husband, who's promised her the stars, quite literally, is not capable of doing what he's promised. And how often do we find ourselves in that spot? Coming up against the hurdle of, is anything too difficult for the Lord? We struggle, we strive, we live in a culture that tells us exactly the opposite of what the scripture tells us. And we, we laugh like Sarah. Maybe not audibly, maybe not intentionally, but in our heart of hearts, in the, in the deepest parts of us, we giggle. This hurdle is too big. This situation is too hard. This valley is too deep. That person is too hard. I think that we struggle in that question, in that doubt, in that laughter, in kind of four kind of big areas. I'm, cer I'm certain that there are more. But I'm going to look at kind of four areas that I think that we need to ask ourselves this question. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? The first is miracles. The second is suffering. The third is obedience. And the fourth is salvation. So let's, let's start with miracles. That, that, that's what's happening here in, in this particular circumstance is that physically biologically, what God is promising is impossible. There is no question that from a human perspective, if you would look at the circumstance, you would say, this is not happening. There is no way in the world that this could possibly come about. No, no amount of fixing, no ingenuity, no hope in the world could make that happen. And man, do we sit there today. Our, our, our world tells us that the way that it is, is that everything is natural. That what we can see around us can be discovered through the wonders of science and we can use repeatability, experimentation to discover what is true. And where, where we lack knowledge, we'll just insert God. And we call this the God of the gaps theory. 
It's essentially people of faith who want to hold on to God, say, well, I, I can't let go of this God, but science is saying X and Y, and we just don't have an answer for Z yet, so we'll place God in Z. You know, we, we understand how the human heart works and, and so on and so forth, so we, we can't, God can't speak into that area, but, but you know, where there's questions, where science hasn't quite figured it out, that's, that's where we'll place God. The, the, the problem with that view is that science is mining the ground of God's creativity. It's not the other way. It's not as if God has to squeeze himself into spots where we don't understand. Oh, the, the wonder of the human heart is amazing. If you look at how the SA node works, and then it communicates with the AV node, and then it sends electrical impulses to the Purkinje fibers so that your heart contracts at just the right method so that it sucks blood from your lungs into the heart and pushes blood out so that your body can actually function properly. Sure, it is quite amazing. And yeah, we figured out a lot about neurotransmitters and how it works and, and how our brains tell our bodies what to do and how it controls our emotions and things like that, but we've only begun to mine the depths of God's creativity. It's, it's, it's not as if science has the book on it and God's just squeezing in. It's science is discovering what God has already done. What he is doing. So, science is only, or, or our natural processes are only the secondary outcome. The primary mover is God himself who causes your diaphragm to contract and your lungs to take in air. Who holds the star in the sky so that the planets can revolve around it. See, our, our understanding of science has actually gotten to be too big. It is only a method to discover God. It is not a tool to eliminate him. But we still come up against the challenge of what do we do in physically impossible situations where the, the, the diagnosis is terminal, the path forward is inevitable, there is nothing that can be done in human experience. Pete, Pete Gregg, I wrote a book called God on Mute. His, his, his wife, just after their second child was born, was diagnosed with a, a, a large brain tumor, which they were able to remove, but the consequences of the removal of that brain tumor was debilitating epilepsy. It, it, and the, the doctors couldn't quite figure it out in that somehow her brain would tell her muscles to contract in incredibly painful ways. And it would start in her outer limbs and move towards kind of the center of her body. And if it got to that point, they needed to get to a hospital because they needed like medical attention to make it stop. On, on, on one trip down to the Ozarks, 
They were taking a family vacation. Him and his wife were in the front seat. They had some friends along, and their kids were in the back of the minivan. They're driving down the freeway, and his wife looks over at him and just has a look in her eye that says, here comes one. So without thinking, he just pulls over into a parking lot, and it just happened to be a church, a little white church with a steeple. And their friends knew what was going on, so they took the kids, and they found a little park over there, and this, and this seizure came on, started in her hand, started working up her arm, and, and she could barely, she could barely bring out the words, just, 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 just pray, just pray. And so, as any good husband does, he prays. Oh, oh Lord, we've been through this a thousand times. God, would you please just, just do something in this, in this moment? Would you stop this? And it's moving up her arm fast, and he's thinking, oh no, we are hundreds of miles away from a hospital. This, this could be the end of my wife. And he looks up out of the window. And there on one of those cliche plaques, all, all it says is there, is there is power in the blood. So he thinks, okay, Jesus, if there's power in the blood, I'm going to pray in the blood. So he starts, just in, in, the, in, the, in the blood of Jesus, I pray, God, would this, would this go away? And, and the seizure starts to move out of her hand. Moves down her arm. So, oh man, he's going to pray. The seizure leaves, and, and he's sitting there in stunned silence, thinking like, what just happens? And, and, and he stops praying, and immediately the seizure starts again, going up her arm. Oh, but, but this time, this time he's like, heck no. I know who holds control over this. And so he prays with a faith that he has never had before, and he prays this seizure right out of the end of her arm, and it disappears. You know, in, in reflecting on that, he wrote in his book, Inside the van, Sammy and I sat silently blinking at each other still trying to make sense of what had just happened. You would really have to go through hundreds of seizures, praying each time without success to have any idea how stunned we were by what had just transpired. Then, in a low voice, Sammy told me something equally bewildering. During that seizure, she had for the first time ever experienced the presence of Jesus actually with her in the pain. I, I gazed across at that poster, so religiously cliche and yet suddenly so relevant and profound to me. This was the very first time we had seen any impact on Sammy's condition physiologically through prayer. What's more, in some mystical way that she found hard to put into words, Sammy had also encountered Jesus in the midst of it all. After years of ineffectual praying, this incident had given us a dramatic insight into some of the spiritual dynamics at work behind the grim neurological realities of Sammy's condition. There is more than just what science says. 
There is a God behind the physiology, behind the neurology, behind the physics and chemistry that can change at will the fabric of reality for His purposes and His glory and for your good. See, our problem when we laugh at miracles is that our God is too small. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? But you see, like, like Pete and his wife, we sit through a valley that just seems to go for forever. We, we pray and we look for a miracle and nothing comes. We struggle with MS or ALS or a terminal cancer or a debilitating disability that, that keeps us from what the world would tell us is good in life. And we say, our God is too small. There is no way that he could actually take this difficulty, that he could take this valley, that he could take this darkness and make it something light. There is no way that the suffering that I'm experiencing right now, the weight that I go to sleep with, the sleepless nights, there's no way that he could actually take this darkness and make it light. That he could take this difficulty and he could make it good. That he could take the thing that is crushing me and make it for my good and eternal glory. This, this was Job's wrestling. If you're familiar with the story of Job, he was a righteous man in God's sight. And God had blessed him with children and land and flocks. And he had it good. And then, one day, all of his children were taken away. And all of his land was destroyed. And his health was taken away to the point where he just wanted to die. His wife's, his wife's counsel to him, bless her soul, was just curse God and die. Like that, that's how bad it is. He's sitting on the side of, the, of a dusty road, co covered in boils, having lost all of his children, all of his possessions, and he's, why, God? What, what have I done? What, what, what did I do to deserve this treatment? And, and his friends come along and go, oh, you know what? There's probably secret sin in your life. You've got to figure it out. you just got to repent. Things will be good. Wonderful friends, hey? It's a bit odd that we actually have a lot of those friends. Right? Oh, there must be something wrong in your life, brother. What secret sin are you carrying? See... But throughout the book, through 37 chapters, God, or Job wrestles with this idea. And he has four friends come along and tell him different things. And, th and then God shows up. And you expect, ah, yes. Now, now what we're going to get is we're going to get a list of why this happened. Number one, I wanted to teach you this. Number two, I wanted to show you this. Number three, if you're just patient, what you'll see is this is going to give you dividends in the end. Like you're just going to find that this is going to explode on you. But that's not what we find. God is quite funny. He's like, okay, Job, you're laying down in the dust of the earth and you're, you're, you're lamenting the challenges that you have. Okay, stand up. 
you're, que- you're questioning me? Okay, stand up. And I-, I want you to take this like a man. Like, just stand up, essentially gird your loins, get ready for battle, and now I'm going to show you something. And, and, this, and this is what God does. Job 38, 4 to 7. Um, where, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk and who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And he goes on and on saying, so like who, who, who decided how big the ocean was and who stopped the ocean from moving forward and who holds the stars in the sky and who numbered the sand on the sea, Job? No, 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 Job, stand up. Take this like a man. Did, did you control the creatures? Do you decide who and when and how they're birthed and where they get food from? Okay, Job, stand up. See, all God does in Job's circumstance is he just peels back heaven and reveals himself. He just says, look at me, Job. Your God is too small. I am way bigger than you could possibly imagine. So you think you're trying to figure out this small thing, and I'm, I'm orchestrating the billions of stars that we have. You don't think that I could take your suffering and make it something? You don't think I can take that small little valley, as difficult and dark as it is for you, you don't think that I can take that and redeem it, that I can take that darkness and make it light, that I can take that suffering and make it joy. You just, don't, you, you just think of me too small. I am bigger than that. See, but that's, that's Paul's experience in the New Testament. Right? I mean, if Paul had something to complain about, it was his suffering, was it not? Floggings, beatings, being rejected. I mean, like you were lucky to survive one flogging, never mind multiple. He gets stoned, being left for dead. Like people thought, oh, this guy's dead. You got, you got to wonder what the recovery was like from that. He probably walked with a limp. And, and when, when he writes to the, sec, to the second Corinthians, when he writes to the Corinthians who are going through difficulty, this is what he says. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, as we look not to the cancer or to the to the terminal illness or, or to the MLS or the ALS or the, or, or the loss of a job. No, no, we don't look to the things that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, Corinthians, your problem is, is you don't understand how big and glorious the future is with God. Lift your eyes to the horizon and see the grandness of God. See, your God is too small. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
But you see, it moves beyond that. There's another little corner of our heart that wants to let, that struggles to make God as big as He is. And that's in obedience. When God calls us to a command and says, you need to live this way. I mean, we, we saw that last week, right? Like Abraham has a, a promise with God and God's like, okay, so you're going to be obedient to me. I want you to circumcise everybody. Whew, that's a big promise. Like, that's not so fantastic, right? I know we're all quiet. It's awkward, circumcision. I get it. But like, you got you to think about like what that meant, right? Like there's, there's stories moving on in the, in, the, in, in, in the future here in Genesis where like Israel takes over cities by getting them to get circumcised and then on the third day, two of them go in and like destroy the entire city because it was painful. It was difficult. It was a long process. But God asks us for obedience, He asked Abraham for obedience, he asked Israel for obedience, and he asks us for obedience. And he doesn't ask us to do small things, he asks us to do big things. Jesus, in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 19 and 20, says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And we think, yeah, but, but my retirement. I mean, what about my kids? They need to go to college. What if right now I'm healthy, but in the future I'm not? How will I provide for myself? I've been working so hard so that I can retire and golf every day when I turn 55 or 65. Or maybe it's 75 now with housing prices. And that's a hard command to follow. Don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth. Use what you have to store up treasures for yourself in heaven, where moth and rust don't destroy. Oh, the realities of that are so incredibly difficult. Because we're not guaranteed a future We want to provide for our kids, and it actually calls into question how big we think our God is. And when he says, look at the lilies of the field and the grandeur with which I clothe them, look at the sparrows in the air. Do they go hungry? And if you kind of twisted, small, sinful people can give good gifts to your children, how much more will I, the God of the universe, the holy and good Father, give you good gifts, my children? 
hard to obey when our God is small. But he asks us this in lots of areas. He says, don't, don't be worried about tomorrow. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Oh man, that's, that's hard when your doctor says, hey, um, you need to come in and you need to come in now. You know, I, I, I had an issue with my knee and I went in to the, to the uh, MRI to figure it out and on my paperwork it said, urgent. And I thought to myself, uh-oh. <laughs> I wasn't so good that day at not being anxious. But you know what the problem was? My God was too small. Because regardless of the outcome of that test, he promises that, he, that this affliction, that any affliction, will work for me an eternal weight of glory. So I shouldn't be anxious. Or how about how we should raise our children? Or what our marriages should look like? You know, Ephesians 5 is a great passage to pretend to use as like some hammer, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. Yes, I've got it. And then we forget the part that says husbands um, die for your wives, okay? So, like, it's so easy to look at the part that's like yours. Just take it like, oh, yeah. I, I made that mistake with my wife. Didn't go so well. God calls us to self-sacrificing marriage. Not get what's mine. Work for what's hers. Oh, but, but you, don't, you don't know what my spouse is like. No, 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 you, your God is too small. Your spouse is just fine. God will work on her or him. He can change the fabric of reality. He holds stars in the sky. He takes darkness and turns it into light. I think he can manage your spouse. In our sexual ethic, in, 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 in how we live out in this world that says we should just embrace whatever, whenever, however, and the Bible says something completely different. Oh, but, but, but you don't quite understand. No, no, no. No, no, no. God calls us to obedience to his word and he is bigger and will redeem it. Is anything too difficult for God? But, 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 but finally, we have too small a God when it comes to salvation. See, because all of us sit here thinking, yeah, you know what? That's me. I faced that diagnosis. I've been traveling this path for so long. We're at the same fight again. God cannot save this. God cannot save my neighbor. God cannot save me. You don't, you don't know the difficulty that's happened in my life. You don't know the wrongs that I do. You don't know how black my mind and my heart are. There is no way God could redeem this. You don't know my neighbor. 
And if it was appropriate, I would use the kind of language that he uses to describe him. God cannot possibly save that. The disciples ran into this problem as they were walking with Jesus. You know, Jesus gets into a kind of a discussion with a, with a rich young ruler. And, and he, uh, in Matthew 19, and the rich young ruler comes and kind of says, hey, like, okay, what, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? God's, and Jesus says, okay, have you followed these laws? Yep, 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 I followed all those laws. And then Jesus says, okay, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sell everything. Give it to the poor and follow me. And the rich young ruler goes, ah, I can't, I, I can't do that. I, I just, I, I cannot do that. And he walks away. And the disciples are flabbergasted. Like they are, they, I mean, if anybody has the blessing of God, it is the rich. Isn't it? I, I, Abraham's an example of that, right? God's blessing was on him. He just kept multiplying so in that culture, at that time, when a rich person came up to you and said, what, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And you said, well, it's kind of outside of your purview because you, you're not willing to do what it takes. Like, the disciples are floored. Their question is, who possibly could be saved? Like, I can't be. I'm a poor fisherman. That's not, that's not even possible. Matthew 19, verse 23. And Jesus said to the disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You and I can look at the three previous ones, our call to obedience, the, wall, the walk of suffering and the belief that God can change what he wants and we can see that we doubt, that we laugh like Sarah, but God can take what is impossible and make it possible. He can take your doubting heart and he can make it a heart of faith. He can take your mind, your enlightened mind of doubt and make it a mind bent on him. He can take your neighbor who seems impossible and by you or those around you, he can transform that life. Through the power of his spirit, through the work of Christ on the cross, there is nothing that stands in the way of salvation. There is nothing that stops us being transformed into his likeness. And when we come to salvation, when we come to that neighbor, to that person that we think isn't possible, when we look at that young guy who just doesn't quite look like, man, he's got it together, or that this message is not going to hit him, you're wrong because your God is too small. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And the answer is emphatically no. Sarah learned that. Imagine her surprise when she found out she was pregnant. It wasn't, oh, I didn't read the tea leaves right. 
where it wasn't I didn't assess my husband's physical capacity right. It was, oh, I guess my God was bigger than I thought. Let's pray. Jesus, I just, I, I, I pray that you, would, that you would do what you did with Job and you would peel back this, the, the heavens and you would show us your glory. That you would show us your bigness. God, would you work in our crooked hearts and our darkened minds and, and what we see so dimly, Father, and would you, would you reveal yourself more clearly to us so that we can be people of faith, trusting in you as we walk into circumstances that the world around us would say is impossible. Oh, Jesus, would you, would you give us hearts that see you as grand and glorious, seated on your throne, ruler of heaven and earth, that you are the author of history, and that as King of kings and Lord of lords, we have nothing to fear because you are great. Oh, Jesus, would you, would you make that so clear in our minds, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.